Amen. If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. I invite you to turn there, the book of Hebrews chapter 13. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. Lord, I would ask that you be with my words this morning, the thoughts, the intents of my heart. I will say some difficult things this morning. I pray that we hear them, that we're strengthened by them, and that we glorify your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, in the book of John, is preparing his disciples for him to eventually leave them. In John chapter 14, he tells them that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father unless they come through Him. He tells the disciples that He's going to the Father, and then He gives the promise of the Holy Spirit. Then in John chapter 15, He tells them that He is the true vine, and that they can do nothing apart from Him. And then He tells them if they keep His commandments, they will abide in His love, just like He kept the Father's commandments and abided in the Father's love. And then in chapter 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then he says one of the most significant statements I think anyone could ever hear. I kind of picture him looking at his disciples and saying, you are my friends. But he gives a clause. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus over and over again made it clear in his teachings that we are to love God and to love others, and the evidence of that love for God and others is obedience. And now we come to this point in the book of Hebrews, remembering that those these people that this book is written to were tempted to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism in order to uh, in order to escape the persecution that they were facing. And the author of Hebrews has warned them repeatedly not to fall away, but to hold fast to Christ. 
And now he gives his final words of exhortation and he says, let brotherly love continue. And he launches into this whole idea of showing love. Listen, much of the New Testament follows this idea of of giving theology and then giving the application to that theology. Some people say the exposition followed by the exhortation or the creed followed by the conduct or the doctrine followed by the duty or the indicative followed by the imperative. I don't care how you want to explain it, but the idea is, uh, here is that we, we believe, we believe something, and this is how this belief is lived out or practiced. That shift started between chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Hebrews. But there's another shift here between 12 and 13. Chapter 12 build, builds up this huge theological statement right at the end God is a consuming fire and then immediately we have this practical command that starts off the next chapter it goes from vertical love to horizontal from right love for God to love for God's church the implication is abundantly clear that we think What we think about God has everything to do with our relationship with one another. This is the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four are vertical in nature. They are theological in nature. And the next six are horizontal. And they deal with ethics and how we treat one another. This is why worship is so vital. Because a proper grasp of God is what will guide us. You can't have theology without doxology theology is the study of god doxology being the expression of praise to god nor can you have doxology without theology theology leads to doxology the study of god leads to the praise of god if it doesn't then we've entirely missed the point If you have the study of God without the praise of God, you simply have a dead system of beliefs. However, if you have the praise of God that is not informed by the study of God, you are committing idolatry. It is merely a random expression of praise not informed by the truth of God. So here's the thing. Our text is saying, because we understand who God is, this big buildup, this is who God is, and because we understand who God is, God is, the natural outflow of that is a certain way to live, especially in the church. And that brings praise to God. So what we have is this focus on love. And we will break it down into three points. First, love the saints. Second, love strangers showing hospitality. Third, love those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. So we so we gather that as a church We are to be a community of love. First, love the saints. Love the saints. The Greek word that is used here for brotherly love is Philadelphia. And of course, as it says, its focus is on the natural love that exists between brothers and sisters in a family. Now we notice that this word is not talking about family, as in a physical family, but it's talking about God's family And it uses the word love. And the idea is that there is a love that exists between Christians that is to be just like a 
family. In fact, the Greek word adelphos means from the same womb, and the word used for love, phileo, means a deep-seated affection. It is the kind of love that holds someone near and dear. These words are combined to show us that like Christ, we have this love for one another because we come from the same source. We are born again by the Spirit of God. Now, there's not a massive difference between brotherly love and what is commonly called agape love or God's love. Biblical love is the supreme mandate that is to mark every single Christian. It is mandatory that every Christian grow in love. How is this possible? How do we grow in love? And how do we love the saints? Because this command, let brotherly love continue, suggests that maybe the relationship had been frayed. And that's why that the author uses the word, let brotherly love continue. So how do we do that? Well, love takes effort. Love takes effort. I don't know why we think that love is easy or that it requires nothing on our part. All through Scripture, we find that love requires effort. We know from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, that they had love for one another because they are commended for their love that they showed towards God and the love that they showed towards the saints. He also commends them in chapter 10 for showing sympathy to those who were mistreated and in prison. So they did love one another, and now he encourages them to make sure that their love continues. Why encourage their love to continue? Well, perhaps it had been, been waning, or maybe they were growing weary of one another. John Calvin makes an excellent point when he says this, but by this precept is general, generally very needful, for nothing flows away so easily as love. When everyone thinks of himself more than he ought, he will allow to others less than he ought. And then many offenses happen daily, which causes separations. Did you catch that? Nothing flows away so easily as love. That is perhaps why in the New Testament there are 55 commands to love. Here's what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Love is not effortless it's not spontaneous love is not automatic if you do not put some effort into it it will fall away marriages crumble and friendships crumble and relationships crumble and churches crumble because we refuse to put any effort into loving one another did you give any thought this past week as to how to love your spouse or your children? Did you take time to pray that God would increase your love for that person that you're struggling with in your family or in the church or at work? 
Did you put in any effort to love fellow saints this week? Not just the ones that you always like to be around, but perhaps the ones that you don't like to be around. We would do well, every one of us, to write down 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and carry it around on a card. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We should read it and reread it over and over and over and over again. Multiple times a day, we should preach it to ourselves over and over and over again it should guide you in every single relationship that you're in we hear it read at weddings it is to guide the christians love for one another in every relationship that you have this is to be your guide church don't let your love flow away as calvin put it don't let it flow away We know that love takes effort. But not only does love take effort, we love because God loves us. Like I talked about earlier, this idea of being brothers is because God has caused us to be born spiritually into His family. If you are a Christian, it means God has done something supernatural in your life. He has given you a new birth by His grace. That is why John tells us, many, as many as received Him, to, get, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being born of God means that God is your heavenly Father. And everyone else that is also born of God is your spiritual brother or sister. Listen, as a father, I get great joy when my children actually display love and care for one another. It fills my heart when I see them, without prompting, love one another and care for one another. Our Heavenly Father is pleased when His children, which is us, that know Christ as our Savior, show love for one another and care for one another. On the night before he went to the cross, in John chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples, A new command I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Well, that's interesting. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another wouldn't that indicate that lack of love for one another is an indication that you are not his disciple listen the foundation for us to be able to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is because God loved us if God did not love us we would not be able to love one another we love because he loved us not only that but our love for others is a reflection of of our love for God. You can see if someone loves God by seeing if they love others. We love because God loved us. Thirdly, 
For love to continue, we must fight against those things that hinder our love. For love to continue, we must fight against those things that hinder our love. This is kind of where the rubber hits the road. I would venture to guess that many times we do not fight against those things that hinder our love for one another. In fact, I find that many times we coddle those things that hinder our love. The Hebrew church had been doing well. And now he gives that exhortation to continue in it. Don't slack off, otherwise that love will flow away. And there, there are many times or many things that can bring a hindrance to our love for others in the Christian faith. I want to explore a few of those with you this morning. Things that hinder our love, brothers and sisters. Things that hinder our love in this church as brothers and sisters for one another. Number one, selfishness. Christian love is to be self-sacrificing not selfish. It is to be caring and committed. It seeks the highest good of the one that is loved. That is what we are supposed to be doing as Christians. And that is the descriptor of how Christ loved us on the cross. He sacrificed himself because he cared for us and wanted to redeem us and bring us to glory. He sought our highest good. His commitment to us was so strong that he was willing to take the wrath of God the Father in our place on the cross. That is how we are to love one another. By self-sacrificing, and yet we rarely see that in the church today. When, when was the last time you sacrificed something to love a fellow brother or sister in Christ? When was the last time that your love actually took some sort of sacrifice to love a brother or sister in Christ? Instead, what we hear is people make ridiculous psychological claims like this. Well, you need to learn to love yourself before you can love God and love others. What utter nonsense. We already love ourselves. There is no command in the Bible to love yourself. Jesus did not say the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it. Love yourself. That's not what he said. No, he said the greatest commandment is to love God, and to love your, the second is like it, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving self is assumed because we all love ourselves. We do a great job at loving ourself. If we truly loved our neighbor as much as we loved ourselves, and care about ourselves, we would all adequately, adequately be obeying the second great commandment. But rarely do we love others as much as we love ourselves. I can prove it. You see someone in need of food? No questions asked, do you give it to them? 
Do you give them money? Do you buy them? Because trust me, if you're in need of food, you eat. It's so easy. We, all we have to do is really examine our heart. Do we really love others as much as we love ourselves? I doubt it. I have found Christians are really good at not loving one another. Which blows my mind. We're really good at treating other Christians terribly. And I don't understand it. Almost every relational conflict, every relational conflict that you have can be traced back to someone in that relationship being selfish. I don't care whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a friendship, or whatever it might be. Someone is being selfish. James chapter 4 makes that clear. We didn't get our way. Things didn't go the way we wanted them to go. And we want our way, and conflict ensues. We're like a bunch of little kids fighting over a toy. And when things go wrong, you're just going to leave. It's time to go home. Things aren't going the way I want. It's time to, time to abandon this relationship. Or in today's world, we unfriend someone on social media because, well, they're not my friend anymore. So if you want love to continue, you have to fight against selfishness. Every conflict that you have, whether it's in the church, outside the church, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's with your children, I don't care. Every conflict that you have is related to selfishness. The second is closely related to it. It's this, pride. Pride. Pride is similar to being selfish. Pride is ultimately at the root of all sins. This is what pride does. It makes us think that somehow we know better than God does in a given situation. So we disregard his word and do what we think is best. Well, I can't love that person. Pride makes me think that that person is just a jerk. That's what pride does. Well, that person's a jerk. I would never act like that, so therefore I'm not going to, I don't need to love them and I don't need to be their friend because they're just a jerk. Pride makes me think that that person is just mean. Or that person just doesn't like me. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But pride plants that thought in your heart. And if you are the one that's not liking another Christian, well, guess what? That's pride as well. Listen, we don't know all the factors in someone's life. We don't know why someone may be behaving a certain way. As a matter of fact, we would do well to stop and realize that we are just as much a sinner as they are. And if it were not for the grace of God, we would be caught up in some sort of sin as well. Pride turns us into Pharisees. Causing us to set up our own standard and then to judge everyone else who does not meet our standard. And say, well, they don't meet my standard. We must fight against pride. Thinking that we are somehow better than someone else. Stop it. And get your pride in check. Number three. We have to fight against impatience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we are told that love is patient. Love is kind. Paul wrote these words and they have a way of revealing to us 
when we are acting in an unloving manner. When we stop and ask if we are being patient and kind, it reveals our heart. Husbands, are you patient and kind towards your wife? Dads, are you patient and kind towards your children? I have to tell you, one of the hardest things for me is patience. I'm not a patient person. I struggle with patience. I can tell you firsthand, when we grow in patience with others' imperfections, we are judging them by our own standard of righteousness, which stems from pride. When I get irritated at my wife or children and I snap at them, I'm being unloving. Plain and simple. Fourthly, we have to fight loving the world. This is a difficult one because, to be honest, most people would say they don't love the world because they just can't see that they really do love the world. First John tells us that not to love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The implications are crystal clear. If I love the world or the things of the world, God's love is not in me. If God's love is not in me, then it will not flow through me to other people. The love of the world includes loving the world's praise and loving the world's recognition. If I love the recognition that the world has given me, then I am loving myself, and therefore I am not loving God or others. If I love the things of the world, then I will be stingy and unwilling to give up things for the sake of others. So to love God and others means I must constantly fight against loving the things that this world has to offer me and puts in front of me. Fifthly, we must fight against factionism. I don't know why, but God did not create us all the same. We think differently. I don't know why everyone just doesn't agree with me. It'd be a better world. Why don't they agree with me on doctrine? It makes things so much easier if God just checked with me first. Right? I would have told him, only save those people who agree with my views and then everything will be okay. However, the fact is God saves people that have different views because that's how God works. Now I want you to follow me. Biblical love means that I will seek the highest good of the other person. Right? Right? Are you with me? I will seek the highest good of the other person. That's biblical love. Now, holding to sound doctrine is essential for the other person's highest good. And therefore, it is good and right to seek to help other believers grow in obedience to God's word and holding to sound doctrine. It's good and it's right. However, if our attempt to help another person understand sound doctrine alienates them, then I have failed them and I am unloving. We have a far greater chance of getting people to embrace the truths that we love if they know that we love them as people. Listen to me, because this is important, what I am about to say, and I don't want someone leaving here misunderstanding what I am saying. I have held to what I call the doctrines of grace and what others call Calvinism since my days in college. 
which was long before I had ever read any of Calvin's writings. I came to believe in God's sovereignty and his election by reading through scripture and coming to a point that I could not escape what I felt the Bible clearly taught all through scripture, especially in the book of Romans chapter 9. Now I say that for a reason. Because people who hold to this doctrine also hold to something that they call the cage stage. And this refers to people who have just seen the truths of the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty, and it has become so clear to them for the first time, and they want everyone to know about it. So what they do is they make sure that every conversation that they get into focuses in on divine election. And they try to make sure that everyone hears about this truth while there is nothing wrong with having a zeal for the truth. You're not going to win anyone to the truth by loudly proclaiming it and trying to make others feel like they are less of a person for believing what they believe. If you're trying to win an argument, you have the wrong idea. Very early on in my Christian faith, I always tried to win the argument. Because I was, I was smart. Like, I'm not smart, but I was biblically smart. Man, I, I knew what I believed. And I could defend what I believed. And I tried to win every single argument. I made my pastor so mad when I was a youth pastor. I made my pastor so mad. He walked out of the church and slammed the door and said, If that's the way God is, I don't want nothing to do with him. That's how good at arguing I was. Because he couldn't defend his belief. That's the wrong idea. I have yet to find anyone that has ever come to believe in the doctrine of God's free and sovereign grace because they lost an argument. And I can argue it well. But I have yet to see anybody go, Oh, you know what? You're right. And I'm wrong. You just won the argument, therefore I'm going to believe what you believe. It doesn't work that way. Don't believe me? Just watch the news. Winning an argument is not going to win you anything. You believe this when God opens your eyes to see it in Scripture just like He did my eyes. And you submit your heart to the greatness of God and you realize like Paul, for, for, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You say, well, well, Pastor, why are you telling us this? Because factionism is divisive. It says, I don't agree with you, so I'm going to form my own group, and I'm going to come against you. I have seen this happen in churches all too often. Churches dismiss their pastor, or someone splits the church, or whatever, and often it's over doctrine where one side talks past the other side, and they don't even understand what each side is saying. Nor do they care to understand it. George Whitfield was a committed Calvinist who loved the Lord. He had a friend from his college days. His name was John Wesley. Wesley was an Arminian. Wesley tried to argue with Whitfield. And Whitfield wrote a letter to Wesley. Here's what he said. My honored friend and brother, hearken to a child who is willing to wash your feet. I beseech you, by the mercies of God in Christ, Jesus our Lord, if you would have my love confirmed towards you, why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us 
that cordial union and sweetness of soul, which I pray God may always subsist between us. How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided. Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all the blood of Jesus. And whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate it to others. Factionism stems from pride. And it will cause division. Love seeks to help others know God as he has revealed himself in his word, but it does not divide over non-essential doctrines. I say this because our own convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, is being faced with this right now, where people are going crazy over what can be labeled as Calvinism and over what they have labeled as traditionalists. Love requires effort. We must love the saints. We must fight against those things that will hinder our love. And we can't expect to love our love to continue unless we rid ourselves of those things that are going to hinder it. Finally, love must be developed. Love does take effort. It must be developed. There's a reason that Jesus summed up the commandments into two, love God and love others. We must read the Bible and study it to develop love. Let me draw your attention to three things real quick. Number one, we must grow in sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Christ. Jesus is the greatest example that we have of what God's love looks like. If you have it stuck in your head that love is always sweet and innocent and mushy, then read the Gospels. Jesus always acted in love, but he often said some pretty hard things. Jesus loved Peter, called him Satan. Sounds real loving, doesn't it? Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Jesus did love the scribes and Pharisees. He told them that they were a brood of vipers. And warned them about hell. In another place, he called them whitewashed tombs filled with dead man's bones. Now, I'm not saying that we go around calling people brood of vipers and say, by the way, I love you. Right? We act like that fixes things. We, we, we sometimes act like, well, if I just follow that up with I love you, then, then that, makes, that gives me the privilege to be a jerk. That's not the case. I want to make it clear that that the love that Jesus showed was not some wimpy, sappy love, and that if you become more like Christ through sanctification, you will have a more complete picture of biblical love. Grow in sanctification. Secondly, seek to serve, not be served. This is vital. If we want to develop love in our life, then we should seek to serve others. Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That has to be our mindset. We must get the focus off ourselves and what we want and our own desires and get focus on others' needs. Servants sacrifice their own desire and time to please their master. So let me just ask you, are you a servant in your family? To your spouse, to your kids, to your parents? Do you come to church to have your needs met or to meet the needs of others? Are you here to serve or be served? Thirdly, have concern for others. If we're going to develop love, we must have a concern for others. The golden rule says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. Listen, we have to have a concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to get to know them and know their needs. 
If someone is sitting alone, we go and sit with them. We really need to stop and ask ourselves, how would we feel in certain situations and respond? We need to ask, how would we want to be treated and respond? Would you want to feel left out? Then don't leave others out. Would you want to feel like you didn't belong? Then help others belong. Would you want to feel like you were not part of some cool little awesome clique? No, you wouldn't want to feel that way, so you include others. Don't make others feel like they're not a part. We can be so selfish that we do not even practice having a concern for one another. So I know I spent most of my time on the first point, in fact, 30 minutes. And that's because I feel that, that if we're doing that first point properly, then all the others will fall in line. So let's look at the next two. Secondly, love strangers showing hospitality. Verse 2 extends beyond brotherly love in the church and goes to strangers. The verse says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This command stems from the fact that in the first century, ends were dangerous and immoral. In Aristophanes, the frogs, Dionysus asks Heracles if he can tell him which inn has the fewest fleas. Plato in the laws instances an innkeeper keeping his guests hostage. And Theophrastus puts innkeeping on the level of running a brothel. It was not a nice, healthy place. Not like today. It's not like the Holiday Inn or whatever. It was a place where thieves targeted and prostitutes lingered. So Christians would welcome traveling believers, especially those doing the work of the gospel. So they would have them come into their home, even if they'd never met them before. They'd have them come stay with them. Christians that practice this had become vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And by the second century, the satirist Lucian made fun of Christians, saying this, that, they, that, they, that Christians helped subsidize the income of professional hucksters. The abuses became so common that the Didache, which was an early Christian handbook, gave this advice. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but let him not stay more than one day. Or if need be, a second as well. But if he stay three days, he is a false prophet. And when an apostle goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread till he reaches his night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Now, the didache is not scripture, but it reveals to us that hospitality was being abused and Christians began to cool their hospitality. To counter the idea that Christians not be hospitable, the author gives it as a command, do not neglect. And then he gives this possibility to the command by saying, some have entertained angels unaware. Now that's a reference to Abraham and Lot because they welcomed strangers and treated them as family, not knowing they were angels, and one of them was, was Jesus in pre-incarnate form. Now by telling them this, the author is not promoting that they be hospitable on the chance that they might get lucky and end up with an angel in their midst. He's simply stating the possibility of it happening is an indicator of how God values 
hospitality. The fact is, some of us have entertained angels. That's the truth. Go back to verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The scripture supports that there is a spiritual realm, even right now, that we can't always see. Stop and think about it. It's possible that you've given some food or or drink or money or whatever it is to a stranger that was a stranger to you, but perhaps it was an angel. We really don't know. That's the point. Scripture continually has placed a high value in hospitality. Paul tells us to share with God's people in need and to practice hospitality in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Peter says, offer, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. I'm often blown away by the fact that Christian leaders think it's okay to be a leader in, the Christi- in Christianity and not practice hospitality. Now the overseer must be above reproach, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. I've tried to open my home to others for this very reason. Because I am supposed to be hospitable. But I often wonder why. Why does the scripture have such an emphasis on that? Why does scripture place such a high premium on hospitality? Why should we open our homes to others? I think... The reason goes beyond just meeting the occasional material need. There's something about being in someone else's home that allows you to get to know them. Through hospitality, you get to know one another. In fact, it is hard to really get to know someone if you've never been in their home. In someone's home, relaxed over meals, sitting in their decor, you get to know someone. This is where the natural exchange happens and true brotherly love gets elevated. Sharing a meal at the table has a somewhat sacred feel to it. It binds us together in the reality that all things come from Christ. As I prepared this message, I sat down, I I thought, how many houses have I been into in our church in the last five years? How many people have invited me into their home? I'll leave the number to myself. I'll let you speculate. Let me just say and be clear, I have an open door policy. My wife might get mad at me if someone shows up unannounced, but I won't get mad. I love it when people come into my home. I love it when people hang out. I love just to sit around. And I plan to do more of it. I like it. But I think there is one final reason to be hospitable, and that is this, to share love with strangers who do not know Christ as Savior. So I would challenge you, To be hospitable, not just to other Christians, but to those who do not know Christ at all. You know what breaks my heart? Is that hospitality is supposed to be so important in Christianity, yet Christianity is being shown up by other major religions who are more hospitable than we are. Yet we claim it's a central truth in Scripture. Lastly, Love those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. And verse 3 speaks of those who are in prison and are mistreated. It is speaking of those who are suffering because of their faith in Christ. He is not specifically referencing criminals, although we should go to prison and share the gospel with criminals. However, in order to remember those who suffer persecution, it would require us to actually stop and think about their situation. The idea is how would you want to be treated if you were the one that was in prison, which is, again, the application of the golden rule. 
That is the point of the phrase, since you all are in the body. The meaning is it could happen to you. You could be thrown into prison and you could be mistreated. So treat those people who are suffering for the cause of Christ like you would want to be treated. In that day, prisoners were totally dependent on their family or friends to bring them food and clothing. The author is saying to them, you need to think about them. You need to meet their needs. You need to help them and you need to show them love. Now, granted, we don't suffer a whole lot of persecution for our faith in this country, though it could one day come to that. However, there are those in prison that do not know Christ as their Savior. Not only that, but we can apply verse 3 to those who are suffering for any reason. And all around the world, there are those believers who are suffering for their faith. You could take time to go to persecution.com, which is the website for Voice of Martyrs. Or you could go to GFA, which is the gospel for Asia, gfa.com, and you can read the stories of persecuted believers. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. When you hear of a brother or sister in Christ, you should weep if they're going through persecution. In fact, I challenge you to take some time and visit both those sites and find people you can pray for. And, and if God moves, maybe you, maybe you find a way that you can help support them. They're suffering for the cause of Christ. And we are to love those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. I want to wrap this up this morning with some application. Have we seen this passage is all about love? Love the saints, which takes effort. Causes, calls us to fight against those things that would hinder our love for one another. We need to love strangers by showing hospitality. We should also show hospitality to one another as it is a key concept in Scripture. And finally, we're to love those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. After we gaze upward, it should cause us to gaze horizontally towards one another. Pastor Ray Stedman told the story of of how shocking it was when he visited the home of a Christian woman who told him of an incident that had happened the night before. Her neighbor had come to her in great distress and asked her for help in some temporary crisis in her life. The Christian woman told Pastor Stedman, I don't know what I'm going to do. I moved here to get away from these kinds of people, and if this woman keeps coming over to my house... I'll just have to find another home. Stedman's heart sank as he thought, how totally unchristian. I can't help but wonder if that woman's attitude is really not all that uncommon among professing Christians. I wonder how often as Christians we act the exact same way. Sure, we say we love the saints. Do we? Are you fighting against all those things that are going to cause your love to flow away from your brothers and sisters in Christ who we are called to love as family? Sure, we say we love our neighbor. It sounds nice. 
But when it comes time to put it into practice, well, that's a different story. How often do we fail to bear witness because of our lack of love? How often does someone on the outside peer inside the church and see a church that is unloving and it's not a witness to them? How often does a non-Christian see how we treat one another? How we act towards one another? How we refuse to love one another despite the fact that it's the second greatest commandment that Jesus gave and what he told his disciples to do and what he said would be evidence that we love him is that our love is for one another and we fail miserably. How often do we run away from or dodge opportunities to show love to others in the family of God all because we are just too selfish? How often, instead of showing love to one another, do we hurt one another and tear one another down? I challenge you this morning, church, focus on loving fellow believers. Focus on being hospitable, helping those who suffer, especially for their faith. I challenge you. Love one another so graciously that anybody on the outside of first Baptist Church looks in and says, I want to be a part of that family because they love one another so greatly. Do not allow them to look in and see division and faction and fighting and being mean to one another and mistreating one another, but allow them to look in and see a love that is so great for one another that they are drawn to it. That is the whole point what the author is saying. Oh, that we would love like that. Let us pray. Father,